welcome to Deeper, a podcast by Wollongong Baptist Church. Join us as we take the plunge and dive deeper into the Word of God as recorded in the Bible. Here, we'll unpack and examine further the Bible talks presented on Sundays across our three English-speaking services. To hear the latest sermon, head to our website at wollongongbaptist.org. Today, we'll be thinking through our most recent instalment in the book of 1 Samuel as our pastors answer questions that arose from this week's talk. So, let's get right into it and dive deeper. everybody to another week of Deeper. My name is Grace Jones. Thank you so much for joining us once again. We are up to talk three in our series on the book of 1 Samuel. This talk was preached on Sunday the 26th of May uh, and it's from 1 Samuel chapter 4 right the way through to 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 17 Um, and it was preached by Ken Davies who joins me now. Welcome back Ken. Thank you for having me back again. It has been quite a while. It has been. But I'm I'm really excited to sit down with you and talk through um, your talk from Sunday. I found it really helpful and um, I think it's been really good going through an Old Testament book. Some of us are a little bit less familiar with this kind of territory. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, yeah, it's just, it's been really helpful, I think. Those of you who have not yet heard the talk, um, I highly recommend that you go back and have a listen to that. Ideally, before listening um, to the podcast, it might make a bit more sense to you. Uh, If you would like to have a listen or a re-listen, you can do that by heading to our website, wollongongbaptist.org. There's a tab there for sermons and you can just click on that and away you go. Um, But for those of us who have heard the talk or who would just like a little recap, Ken, can you firstly uh, let us know, uh, talk us through a little bit about where we're up to in the story of the book of 1 Samuel? Sure. Yeah, be happy to. Uh, I think that one of the things that has hopefully been clear through the handbooks especially has been this whole concept that 1 Samuel is following directly on from the period of the Judges recorded in the book of Judges. Uh, And there's a cycle set up in there where Israel disobeys God. As a result, he sends a a nation to punish them. When the Israelites finally realise that they've done the wrong thing, they repent and God sends a rescuer. And when we get to the book of 1 Samuel, all of a sudden the history of Israel, which has been going very quickly uh, through the book of Judges, slows right down and we stop and we get a whole lot of detail. Mm. And so the book begins off uh, with the dedication of Samuel to God as an answer to Hannah's prayer. Uh, And so this little boy is taken up to the tabernacle at Shiloh, uh, lives and works at the tabernacle and is like this little priest who's replacing the priests of Eli, uh, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who have been doing very wicked things and have, as religious leaders of Israel, have taken God's people further and further from his ways. Uh, And so the story where we're up to in the third talk is that Samuel um, has become this priest, uh, one who's bringing God's word of judgment against wicked religious leaders. uh, And we're finding out the fulfillment of that which takes place in uh, chapter four. And so um, can you talk us through a little bit about what was that for, what was that fulfillment? Yeah. So the fulfillment, uh, because Eli's sons had uh, done wicked things, uh, God 
told him, told Eli actually twice through Samuel and through another prophet earlier uh, that they were going to be judged with death. Uh, and both of his sons would die on the same day, and exactly that takes place. The uh, Israelites go into battle against the Philistines, which are a nation living alongside of the Promised Land, uh, their perpetual enemy, uh, and they lose the initial battle against the Philistines. Because they do that, they bring up the Ark as some kind of lucky charm uh, mm. that they think will help them to win the battle, and instead they lose the battle again. As part of that, the Philistines kill Hophni and Phinehas and take the Ark home back to Philistine territory. Yeah, right. Uh, so can you summarise for us the message that you preached on Sunday at church? Yeah, we. Uh, I, I focused particularly on chapter 5, although the whole story runs chapter 4 through to 7. Uh, we looked at just chapter 5 and particularly the response of the Philistines to what takes place. Touched very briefly on the reaction of the Israelites to the loss of the ark, and they recognize that the glory of God has left uh, Israel. With the ark leaving, there's something that they've lost that was central to God's presence with them mm. uh, in the center of the promised land. Uh, and so chapter 5 follows the story of the ark being taken to Philistine territory, uh, and it looks like Israel has lost uh, they've lost the battle. Uh, the Philistines have won. Clearly, they're the, the superior nation. They have the superior God is the conclusion that the Philistines come to. And yet, uh, the way that I presented the message uh, was that what this is actually doing is proving a truth about God, that he's sovereign, that he's in control everywhere and at all times. Uh, so that was the first point. Uh, secondly, that because of that's the type of God he is, there's no way that he can be manipulated either by Philistines or by uh, God's own people. Uh, thirdly, that God's a solo saviour. And then as kind of an application of all of those three, because he is this God who's in control everywhere, uh, then he's a very uh, a worthy king, uh, a, somebody who we should be able to trust. Uh, and so develop the application of that what that looks like in the life of God's people back then, but also what it looks like in the life of God's people now. Thank you. Um, so we've been able to have people text in this mm -hmm. series with their questions uh, from the sermon. Uh, and one that's come in uh, is this. It says, is using certain techniques for prayer necessarily being manipulative with God? Or can there be things that help us pray? For example, why did James uh, tell his readers to pray and anoint the sick with oil? Yeah, it, it, it definitely, um, in answer to the question, is using certain techniques for prayer necessarily being manipulative with God? Obviously not. Uh, the, the disciples come to Jesus and ask him explicitly to teach them to pray. Uh, there are these instructions in the book of James. Uh, we look to Paul's example of prayers, uh, and it's obvious that we are taught uh, how to pray. It's not something that we just automatically know what to do. Mm. And so there are there's right ways of doing it. And yet, clearly, I think the point that I was trying to make, uh, and maybe it didn't come through clearly, is that... There's no recipe that we're given. If we pray the Lord's Prayer word for word, does that mean that we'll get exactly what we want? If we pray a certain way and, and we use the things that we're told to use, does that mean God will answer us according to what we want? Uh, and clearly all of the examples of praying, uh, both in Old Testament and New, 
are this recognition that we're coming to the God who is in control, the God who is all capable, and we're asking him as our heavenly father for his provision. And so it's not coming to somebody telling them, this is what I need. Can you just provide it for me? It's an interaction with God and saying, this is what I feel that I need. Can you provide uh, what I need with a recognition? Clearly, Jesus shows us in the Garden of Gethsemane, yet not my will, but yours be done. Mm. Uh, And so I think bringing all of those things together, is there a technique? Well, there's things that we can certainly learn from the attitude that's displayed in prayer. Um, There's things that we can understand in what what is appropriate and right to pray for from the example of those in scripture. But again, recognizing that this is not a recipe. If we just match this perfectly, then we're guaranteed to get what we want. That's Mm. not what prayer is all about. Mm. I guess uh, connected to that um, is my next question. How do we balance Jesus' teaching? Uh, I think it's in the book of Matthew where he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, we can move mountains. Um, how do we kind of balance that thinking with the message from the sermon that we can't just assume that God will um, do what we want or what we expect of him? Mm-hmm. I, I think what Jesus is is explaining to us there is that, again, don't limit God. Um, if, we, if we think that uh, what can take place is based upon what we're able to understand or what we're capable of doing, then we're putting the limitations that are our own limitations upon God. And what Jesus is very clearly saying here is, is don't put your limitations onto God. God's capable of doing things way beyond your capacity. Mm. Uh, there's no way that you can move a mountain uh, in your own ability. And yet if you come to God and you believe uh, that he is able, then he is able. Uh, but that's not to say that therefore he will do everything that we ask of him. Uh, and so in our praying, it does have to be in alignment with the things that God wants for us. Uh, there's no point in us uh, praying for things that are from selfish motivations or things that clearly contradict his word. Mm. Uh, but as we're praying in alignment with uh God's desires, the things that God wants both in our lives and in the lives of those that we're interacting with, uh, then as we pray for things, recognizing that we're not able, but he is, uh, then he's only too willing uh, to provide those things that will lead to uh, the things that he wants taking place, taking place. Uh, And so again, it's a a very strong recognition as we pray uh, that we're incapable, that Mm -hmm. we're unable, uh, and we're coming before the one who is able uh, and saying, Lord, we can't do this, but we know that you can. Mm. Uh, It's a very different attitude from saying, you need to do this for me. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. thank you for clarifying that. Um, How do we think through and think rightly about how God is present here in this story? Um, So there's kind of, I guess, throughout the Bible, there seems to be these different presentations of God. Uh, And in this one in particular, we see that God is, um, like really powerful, mm-hmm. something, someone to fear, mm-hmm. um, quite scary. It's a different presentation than what we see, particularly in the New Testament, mm-hmm. uh, where Jesus is, is just a man, mm-hmm. he's approachable, he's compassionate. Um, how do we kind of marry these two um, presentations of God? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's a, it's a clarifying what's the relationship uh, of God presented in the Old and the New Testament. And, they, and many people uh, simplistically argue that the God of the Old Testament is angry, uh, he's 
vengeful. He's quick to judge, uh, whereas Jesus is nice and you can you can Lovely. be good friends with him. Um, and, and I think we've got to be really careful at making that strong distinction. Uh, the God, it's the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. Uh, clearly, there's a clarification of what God is like uh, as Jesus reveals the Father to us. Uh, and yet the, the presentation of God, the truth about God that is given to us in the Old Testament is still just as relevant today as it was when it was given to Israel back then. And so this reality of a God uh, who has created, who's in control, who is a judge, uh, who is holy, these are things that are all still just as true about God today as they were 3,000 years ago or whenever it was in the time of the judges. Uh, and so... In some sense, what this does for us is it helps to clarify the, the incredible message that when Jesus comes and dwells on the earth, it is that same God. It's the God, the holy God who can't stand to be in the presence of sin or rather sin can't be in his presence. And yet he's willing to interact with sinful people, the, the people that even uh, the people of Israel don't want to be hanging around with. And yet the holy God's willing to, to go and to touch them. He's willing to, to be with them and eat with them. Uh, it's a very different uh, presentation. And yet we can't lose the concept that God has always had a way that's appropriate for sinful people to approach the holy God. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was to do with sacrifices, being a part of his chosen people. There are a whole lot of restrictions placed upon that. Uh, in Jesus, it's made cl even clearer that his desire is for unholy people to be able to interact with and be in relationship with, to be a part of his family. Uh, and so it's not a different thing. It's just a development of what's always been his desire. God wants the restoration, the reconciliation of relationship uh, with the, the relationship that had been broken in the garden by us. Does God withhold himself from us? Um, the psalmist talks about not being able to flee from the presence of God. Uh, yet in the passage that we were looking at on Sunday, we see that God uh, allowed himself to be removed from the presence of Israel. Mm. Um, so is God ever not with us now? It's a great question and we've got to think really carefully about how the, the presentation of God in the Bible is nuanced. Yes. Um, particularly when uh, this will go on, the book of Samuel will obviously lead into two kings as well, one and two kings as well, uh, and the building of the temple. Uh, and again, Solomon at the, at the dedication of the temple recognizes that even with this magnificent building, um, God's not really present there. It's his name is present there. This is some kind of symbol of mm. his special dwelling with his people. And likewise, when we've got the ark, it's this holy golden box with angels on top of it. And it is clearly called the, the throne where God's enthroned between the cherubim. Uh, it is a special symbol of God's presence with his people. Uh, and yet God's presence is not limited to a box. Uh, God's not inside the box. Uh, he's not on top of the box. Uh, he's far bigger than that. And so uh, a complementary truth to God's sovereignty is God's omnipresence, that he's everywhere at the same time and always. Uh, and so even though he's present in a special way uh, in the tabernacle, 
in the Ark of the Covenant, then in the temple. Um, just because the, the Ark is taken away from Israel doesn't mean that now God's not with them. Uh, he's teaching them a lesson. They're supposed to understand something from her. Uh, but I don't think that we can argue that God's gone and he's no longer with his people. Uh, another book that further develops this idea is the book of Ezekiel. Um, again, the, the, the throne of God in a vision is taken up from the temple and leaves. It goes out the gate. Uh, and clearly the, the people of Israel are left without God. Uh, it's a presentation to explain what the exile is, why Israel was removed from the promised land. And it is an indicator in some sense that God is removed from them. Uh, and yet God's still with them. He's with his people. He's with those, the ones who've uh, understood that they, they, they desperately need God uh, if, in, if they're going to continue existing. And so I think we've just got to be really careful uh, in saying, is God taken away from Israel? Yes, in one sense. But in a, in a very clear other sense, no. I, I think this has an application in terms of today. Um, some uh, churches that I've been to, I've heard people talk about, uh, we invite you, God, to be present with us as they start their time of meeting together. Mm. And I can understand the thinking behind it. We, we want to meet with you, God. We want you to be here with us. We want to, we want to be close to you. Uh, and yet are we saying that prior to us praying that prayer, God wasn't with us, mm. um, that when we leave the building, that now we're not with God. Uh, I think that that's a very dangerous mm. understanding of God and sacred space that he's somehow restricted to a particular pace, particular location, a particular time. We've got to understand that we're always living in the presence of God at all times, 24 seven. Uh, when the ark is amongst the Philistines, they suffer and they end up pushing God away, no longer wanting the ark in their presence. Um, is this God hardening their hearts? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating response. Uh, and I think it's just a natural reaction that something's come close to us. It's caused pain. It's caused devastation. Well, we need to push it away because when the ark wasn't here, well, we were going okay. Mm. Um, it's very fascinating that these all these four chapters actually um, derive a lot of their language from the Exodus. And so the whole idea of hardening hearts, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, in one of the chapters, it talks very explicitly about the fact that um, the religious leaders of the Philistines have heard about the story of the Exodus. They've understood what Pharaoh did. Now, how they got that information, we have no idea. But they'd heard the story and they understood it. And they explicitly tell the Philistines to not react the way that Pharaoh did. Don't harden your hearts. Mm. And so while the Israelites lived in Egypt for 400 years, um, this takes place in, in quite a, sh a relatively short period of time, just seven months before the Philistines are... are in effect, kicking the ark out. Mm. Um, and so I don't think that they have hardened their hearts. They're, they're responding uh, relatively quickly to what's taken place. Um, they clearly don't have a very good understanding of God. They're still linking God to the box. They're thinking that uh, God is dangerous and they're not asking questions, how can we interact with God in a better way? Yeah. They're still thinking that they can somehow utilize his power or control him or something like that. They've still got a very mixed up understanding of who God is and how they interact with him. And so they're pushing God away from themselves. It's not like uh, Israel disobeying the covenant. I think it's much more a recognition that 
uh, we can't control this. This is outside of our ability to to uh, channel in the way that we want it to go. And so rather than try to understand it, let's just get a, get it away from us. Mm. The fascinating thing is, is that when the ark is sent back up to Israel, um, so the Philistines go through this whole uh, ceremony of how to send it back to Israelite territory. They put it on a, on a cart. They try to make it, if, has this just been bad luck? Uh, they, so they make this test to see if it's really God been behind this. When the ark eventually gets up into Israelite territory again, uh, the Israelites are excited that it's back. Uh, and yet they do the wrong thing. They interact with God the wrong way. It says that they looked into the ark. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. Did they take the lid off it and actually look at what was inside? Either way, what is clear is that they've, they, haven't re, uh, they haven't related to God in the way that he has made it clear is appropriate. Uh, and as a result of that, quite a number of them die, whether it's a small number or an enormous number, depends on which uh, version of the Bible that you're reading. Um, but clearly, God's holiness, his way of interacting with him is something that he presents to us. He reveals, how do you as unholy people come close to me? And if we don't interact with God in the way that he's presented, uh, then there are consequences of it. Mm. So coming back to one of your earlier questions about, isn't Jesus just nice and cuddly? <laughs> um, well, no, he's not, because again, you have to interact with Jesus the right way. If you mm. rebel against him, if you refuse to acknowledge that he comes from the Father, if you refuse to acknowledge that he's the Savior, he's the King, um, then ultimately he remains your judge. Mm. Uh, and so, yes, in some sense, Jesus seems to present this more merciful picture. And yet there's still a very clear line drawn that you still have to respond to God in the way that he reveals is right. And mm. if you don't, ultimately you stand under his judgment. Mm. I guess connected to all that then is my final question for today. Um, what does it look like for us to rightly revere the Lord mm. as we go about things in our day-to-day -day lives? Let's try to get practical i guess mm -hmm. um how do we connect all of these ideas to the here and now the ordinariness of what we're doing now yeah uh, i i think it's it's great as you are looking at old testament narrative old testament stories it's really fascinating to see that that these are not uh explicit lessons like in many passages of the new testament right. the new testament identifies this is a problem in your thought or your behavior this is the corrective uh, and as we read the Old Testament, we see, no, these are stories of how Israel are living and we have to work out, well, what's the thing that they're doing wrong? What's the principle in what they're doing? Because obviously we can't uh, interact with the ark the wrong way. There's no ark to interact with. Yeah. So what's the principle that's still relevant here? Uh, there's lots of them. Obviously, the focus from 1 Samuel 5 was on God's sovereignty uh, we could have looked at God's holiness. We could have looked at his judgment. We could have looked at a whole bunch of things. Uh, and so recognizing that as we continue to, to look at further at uh, the chapters, uh, just chapters four to seven, or as we go on in the rest of the book, uh, there's lots of intricacies about God that he's teaching to his people. Uh, he's taught many of these things already, uh, revealed them through the law in Exodus. Uh, he's revealed them through how he's interacted with Israel in the past. And yet Israel are very quickly falling back into mistakes of misunderstandings about 
well, how much is God in control? Mm. They, they take on the understanding of the people around them that, that God's look after particular areas and maybe God doesn't have control in Ebenezer. So what are we going to do about that? And I think it shows a, a very clear pattern of what humans are like is that we very, very quickly fall into the habit of taking on the understanding of those around us and, and whether it's peer pressure for younger people or us going along with our society, it's still the danger of God's people today that rather than uh, taking God at his revelation of himself, we'll think of God in the way that the people around us think about God. We won't think about his holiness at all. We'll say, well, no, we've got a better understanding of what's appropriate ways of living given our scientific understanding of people mm. and psychology uh, rather than saying, okay, well, God's the creator. He knows how we're best to operate. Uh, we'll take God at his word. Um, so we won't think about his holiness. We we won't think about his judgment. We won't think about his sovereignty instead of, instead of him being in control of all things, we'll start thinking about, well, God's in control when things are going good, but when things that are happening that are bad or that I don't like, well, Satan's coming and he's got control now. Now, mm-hmm. I, I don't think the Bible ever allows us to think that yeah. Satan is opposition. He is able to do things and he's very powerful, and yet he never is outside of the control of God. And so the danger is for us to allow uh, outside thinking to come in and start to change the way that uh, we interact with God. Uh, one, of the, one of the really clear things that we need to take from this particular passage is that God is always present. There's nothing that's happening outside of his control. And so uh, as, we, as we take that on board, as we have day-to-day things going on, I think that we'll be, we should be more conscious uh, that God's in all of those things. He's not just interested in the sacred or the time that we're at church. Uh, he is interested in our day-to-day lives as things are going bad at home or as you're driving or as you're just interacting with friends. Uh, he is there. He's watching. He's observing. He's interested. Uh, he's wanting relationship. He doesn't want a couple of hours on Sunday morning, a few hours for home group. He wants us to recognize that he's always with us and we're always in his presence, always interacting with him. And therefore, how's that going to affect the way that we live? Oh, God's holy. I'm not going to be involved in unholy things. Uh, God's the one in control of all things, wants relationship with people. Okay, I'm going to, how, how am I going to uh, apply that as I'm interacting with my relatives that are not Christians? I, yeah. ne- I need to be using opportunities uh, to try and speak with them about God. And so it makes it very clear uh, that there's not a sacred secular divide in our time. God's yeah. always with us, uh, and, and that's a great encouragement. Well, thank you so much for um, sharing with us today and for joining us on Deeper. It's been great to have you back on the show. Um, yeah, we'll leave it there. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to Deeper by Wollongong Baptist Church. We'd love you to join us at any of our services this coming Sunday. For details and to hear further content, please head to our website at wollongongbaptist.org.